calling all coffee obsessives. According to research conducted by the University of Sydney, decaffeinated coffee quells caffeine withdrawal symptoms. The researchers found that typical caffeine withdrawal symptoms like headache or fatigue, bad mood, and irritability shrank after participants drank decaf, regardless of whether or not they knew it was decaf. This is Pulse Check. I'm Ruth Reader. The number of drug overdose deaths in the U.S. is continuing to decline month over month according to new provisional data on overdoses from the CDC. Between September 2021 and September 2022, there were 100,521 drug overdose deaths reported, a 3.4% decrease from the previous 12-month period. But not all regions are experiencing a decrease. Some 25 states, as well as the District of Columbia and New York City, continue to see increases during that 12-month period. Delaware, Maine, and Wyoming had the steepest increases. Meanwhile, the World Health Organization's investigation into origins of COVID-19 has stalled due to ongoing difficulties collaborating with China. In June 2022, the scientific advisory group tasked with investigating evidence around the origins of the coronavirus called for new studies, including audits of labs close to where the original outbreak was first reported in Wuhan. But on Tuesday, the journal Nature reported that the second phase of the investigation had been shelved. However, a WHO spokesperson told Politico that although the investigation had not been abandoned, they needed more access and data from China to continue. And psychedelics have surged in popularity in recent years. In 2020, 1.4 million people tried them for the first time, according to the National Survey on Drug Use and Health. Erin Shoemaker joins me to talk about the newest developments in psychedelics that she's following. Thanks so much for having me. So you did a piece about psychedelics for the Future Pulse newsletter. And in particular, you talked to this one researcher who's doing some really interesting work in this field. So let's just lay out the landscape for our audience real quick. So what are researchers exploring in terms of psychedelics right now? What sort of are some of the ailments that they're thinking about treating? And what are the potential use cases? Yeah, so a few of the different conditions, a lot of them are mental health conditions and some pretty tricky ones. I'm talking treatment-resistant depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, substance use disorder, cluster headaches. And then some of the substances that they're looking at include psilocybin and ketamine, which isn't technically a psychedelic, but it's psychedelic adjacent. You talked to David Olson, the founding director of the New Institute for Psychedelics and Neurotherapeutics at the University of California, Davis. What were your big takeaways from that conversation and sort of what is he working on? Yeah, so it was really, it was a really interesting conversation. The center, the institute just launched in February, like officially launched. And one of the biggest takeaways for me is just the shift in thinking that we've seen from sort of that 1960s psychedelic trippy drugs as a party substance to today, it's really being looked at more like a medicine or a therapeutic. And that's just a massive cultural shift that I think is fascinating. 
Yes. The government has historically been very averse to psychedelics. You know, they're illegal. <laughs> They've been illegal for years. But in recent years, the FDA has actually been allowing for more research into psychedelics. And in 2019, the agency actually approved a derivative of ketamine called S-ketamine, and that's being used for treatment-resistant depression. And actually, when that passed, or when the FDA approved S-ketamine, it actually opened the doorway for off-label prescription of ketamine, which is typically used as an anesthetic in surgery, but now is being used intravenously to treat kind of a range of things, mostly treatment-resistant depression, but then also some sort of less intense forms of depression as well. I've heard that the FDA may approve MDMA for PTSD in 2024. So obviously, like a real relaxing, a real change in attitude, as you were saying. But these drugs are still controlled substances. And from my understanding, they're governed by the Controlled Substances Act. So can you tell me anything about where the DEA fits into this and sort of if their thinking or approach has changed towards psychedelics? Yeah, Ruth coming hot with the facts. Um, yeah, the DEA controlled substances angle is pretty interesting. It makes it more difficult to research some of these things. So ketamine in particular is actually a Schedule One controlled substance. That means that he can't just easily put out a call to work with other institutions across the country and like send these drugs back and forth to study them. Like the way he put it to me was if I want to tap my friend at Harvard who has some kind of machine or technology that might be useful for studying this substance, studying ketamine, we can't just easily work together. We have to jump through all kind of, kinds of regulatory hoops to do so. And unless this is like the main focus of my research for the year, it's just like not worth it. So that's part of why he founded this institute. They can do almost everything that they need to do in-house without facing some of these regulatory barriers involved in the research. He also said that it's actually easier for him to study cocaine because it's a, a Schedule II controlled substance than it is to study ketamine, which is a Schedule I controlled substance. He thinks it's wild that he it's easier for him to study cocaine than it is for him to study ketamine because cocaine is like pretty well-documented and well-researched um, as being a highly addictive, often or sometimes, substance that has potential for diversion. It's a, just like a higher-risk substance all around, and yet it's easier to study because of these rules. Yeah, and I believe, you know, for years it was only certain research institutions, like you really had to go through this crazy approval process. And there were very limited institutions. John Hopkins was one of them. I believe there's one at Harvard as well, where you could actually study this stuff. It was very, very limited. So it's interesting to hear that he is still having a hard time. But on the other hand, the fact that he's able to research it at all is sort of a change too, right? I think that's a great point. And I also think that's part of the reason the Institute was founded, to make it easier to study these things by having them all in one in-house. So what are the big concerns? Are there concerns that we should be thinking about or aware of when it comes to some of these drugs? Yeah, I think so. I mean, as Olson said, they are powerful substances and need to be treated as such, which I think is an important point to make. You know, the general consensus is that substances, ketamine, for instance, do not have the same addiction potential as something like 
opioids. But as someone who reported on the opioid crisis circa 2016 or so, uh, it's kind of a constant drumbeat in my mind. Like there was a point at which opioids were treated as a silver bullet for the pain crisis in America. And I, you know, I can't help but hope that we tread carefully with this promising new set of substances for mental health treatment. You know, it is so interesting, the ketamine issue, um, or in talking about ketamine and addiction, because like the truth of the matter is in the U.S., as compared to some other drugs that are, you know, more frequently used recreationally uh, and illegally, (laughs) ketamine is not like the biggest one out there, right? But there has been an uptick in usage uh, in recent years. And, you know, in other countries, and I think particularly the UK, there is actually a huge problem with ketamine addiction. And we see this in other countries around the globe. So there is potential there, from what I understand, even if we don't see it so directly in our data. And so I know researchers are thinking about this, or some researchers are thinking about this. And I believe there is some hope, actually, or there's some desire to create new standards around the use of these substances. Because sort of a funny thing has happened too, especially in regards to ketamine, which is that as ketamine was approved and there are rules for how that drug can be administered, right? But ketamine, to your point, which is though a Schedule One drug, you know, can still be prescribed off-label and is, there are fewer, if no, standards around how ketamine, regular old ketamine that we've been using as an anesthetic for years, should be administered for treatment-resistant depression or depression. And so I know that there is some desire for standards from the academic community to develop sort of a consensus around how should we be using this? What else can we look for? What's sort of like the next phase of psychedelics? Yeah, the other big takeaway from my conversation with Olson, he was explaining to me that the Institute isn't just studying drugs that we already have, like psilocybin and like ketamine. They're also trying to develop new drugs, what he called next generation drugs. And the interesting thing there is that the goal is to develop drugs that are non-hallucinogenic. And that would be useful for a couple of reasons. One, it it could make it potentially a more scalable treatment because you could, you know, potentially prescribe this non-hallucinogenic substance to people at home. They wouldn't, you know, necessarily have to come into an office and get an IV treatment. And the second is that when people go to do some of these treatments right now, it's like if they are having a hallucinogenic experience, um, you know, that might mean a whole work day. You know, you, not, not that many people that I know uh, would be able to regularly take off eight hours um, at a time to do mental health treatment. Usually if you go to see a therapist or whatever, it's 45 minutes or an hour. Um, eight hours is a big commitment. And so to make that change from a hallucinogenic substance to a non-hallucinogenic substance, yeah, that could be a powerful, a powerful new treatment avenue. Well, it sounds like such an interesting area of development. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me about it. Oh, thank you, Ruth. And that's our show. Our music is by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Afra, Abdullah, and Annie Reese are our producers. Brooke Hayes is our editor. 
Our healthcare team editors are Eli Reyes, Dan Goldberg, Barbara Van Tyne, Beth Belton, and Sean Zeller. Jenny Ament is the executive producer of audio at Politico. I'm Ruth Reader. Subscribe and follow Pulse Check for a new episode every day. And subscribe to our newsletters where you can read this reporting. Pulse, Future Pulse, and Prescription Pulse. Thanks for listening.